Wow, this is a different setting than I usually find myself preaching in. I want to thank Dr. Gregory uh, for extending the invitation uh, for me to do this and uh, for Dr. Garland and Dr. Tucker for allowing me to fill the pulpit this morning. We measure all kinds of things. We measure success and failure, good and bad, fast and slow, height and depth. And we have units of measurement such as progress reports, ethics, miles per hour, inches and feet. And all of these give us accurate readings of these types of things. I have a question for you this morning. How do you measure depth? And before you jump out of your seat to answer me, take this into account. Depth is everywhere all around us. Depth in photography refers to the range of distance in a picture that appears acceptably sharp. Depth in sports refers to the number of players you have on your bench that can be subbed in without any level of talent being lost. Depth can also refer to intellectual complexity or the range of one's understanding or competency. So how do you measure depth? And I can admit that that's somewhat of an unfair question. I would like for you to venture with me for just a second into the world of oceanography. One of the major sections of this area of study is to measure the depth of the ocean. Before the development of echo sounding, boatmen used what is called a sounding line to measure the depth of the ocean. Now this sounding line consisted of some amount of weight attached to the bottom of a line And there were marks along this line at given increments of feet, whether it be a knot that was tied or a piece of leather. These marks on the line were called fathom points. The points that were not marked on the line in between the fathoms were called deeps. Now before the use of the echo sounding, there was only so much that could be measured Water near the coast that was less than 100 fathoms or 100 marks was considered a level not too deep to be fathomed. The area offshore beyond 100 fathoms or marks was considered too deep to be fathomed. I would like to talk to you today about our own tool for measurement, theology. I would assume that most of us would not merely consider theology a unit of measurement, but I think in a way it is. Theology can be defined as the systematic study of the existence and nature of the divine, as well as its relationship to and influence on other beings. Theology is what brings us here today, and theology is what we use to explain and measure God. And theology serves us well. There are many things that theology can accurately measure in the waters near the coast. But just like the sounding line, there are areas of God that are considered too deep to be fathomed. You see, there are some things that theology can't measure. 
If we look at our text this morning in Romans, we find that Paul has just spent three chapters trying to explain the mystery of salvation. And beyond this, he has spent 11 chapters total working through some, what some may describe as his theological discourse. He comes to this point here that we find him, and I can just imagine this scene. Paul is pacing back and forth in a candlelit room while Tertius, his assistant, is waiting at his desk, pen in hand. Paul has been thinking and debating and Tertius has been writing frantically for hours. I can imagine that the sweat on both of their foreheads is just a small glimpse of the time and effort that they have put into this work. Paul asked Tertius to read the last portion of the text back to him. As Paul is pacing, Tertius begins to read, for just as once, uh, just, for just as you were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience, so that he may show mercy to all. And it's at the end of this reading that Paul stops. He stands silently for a moment. And then he bursts into exaltation. And Tertius frantically writes as Paul falls to his knees in worship as he proclaims these words. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Or who has given to him that it should be paid back to him? For from him and through him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. You see, there are some things that theology just can't measure. Oh, the depth of God's riches. This term refers to the abundance of God's mercy and kindness. Paul uses this expression three times in the previous chapters before this. And in chapter 2, verse 4, he says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? I believe that it is in this, pl that it is in this place that Paul is remembering the abundance of riches that God has poured out over the Israelites throughout history. We all know the, th we all know the story the endless cycle of sin, exile, and restoration. And as you think through the story of the Israelites, answer this question for me. Has God not displayed an endless depth of riches through his mercy and kindness? Or maybe it would be helpful to look beyond the story of the Israelites to our own lives. Think for a second about the depth of the riches that God has lavished on your life. Has God not been merciful to us? You see, there are some things that theology just can't measure. Oh, the depth of God's riches and wisdom. This term wisdom refers to the wisdom which informs God's purposes and his accomplishment of them. 1 Corinthians reads, For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. 
He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things to nullify the things that are. And how true this is. Think with me for a second. A child promised to a couple too old for childbearing. A battle won by walking in circles with trumpets. A fire from heaven on an altar drenched with water. A talking donkey. A pregnant virgin. A dead Messiah and a vision on the shoulders of fishermen, tax collectors, and a persecutor. Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? You see, there are some things that theology just can't measure. Oh, the depth of God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. The knowledge of God here refers to God's electing love and loving concern which it involves. God's knowledge of how his salvation plan will work out is so much greater than our knowledge of how or even if election and free will go hand in hand. Beyond this, Jesus makes clear in Matthew 6 that God knows our needs And what is most amazing about this is that this God that is being described is not a distant God that stands far away from us. But rather this is a God who has an intimate knowledge of who we are and what we need. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. And if this isn't enough, Paul moves on and offers a response to his contemplation of these things. How unsearchable his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Origen has this to say about this phrase. Paul did not say that God's judgments were hard to search out, but that they could not be searched out at all. He did not say that God's ways were hard to find out, but that they were impossible to find out. For however far one may advance in the search and make progress through an increasingly earnest study, even when aided and enlightened in the mind of God's grace, we will never be able to reach the final goal of our inquiries. Paul's exclamation here claims that the issue is not that the sounding line is too short. The issue, or rather the thing worth our praise, is that there is no bottom to this ocean. Paul continues to drive this point home with the use of two sets of quotations. He uses these quotations as rhetorical questions, but knowing that the answers are obvious. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor, or who has first given to him that it should be paid back to him? The first of these these quotations is taken from Isaiah 40, which reads, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or who as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult and whom gave him understanding and who taught him in the path of justice and taught him in knowledge and informed him in the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust in the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. To whom will you liken God or what likeness 
will you compare with him? I think that a modern day reading of this same passage would sound something like this. I'm going to do my best to imitate a portion of the short sermon that was given by S.M. Lockridge many years ago. If I could equate this Isaiah 40 passage to something modern, this would be it. My king was born king. The Bible says he's a seven-way king. He's the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of the heavens. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. Now that's my king. Well, I wonder, do you know him? My king is the key of knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. He's the master of the mighty. He's the captain of the conquerors. He's the head of the heroes. He's the leader of the legislators. He's the overseer of the overcomers. He's the governor of governors. He's the prince of peace. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That's my king. His office is manifold. His promise is sure. His light is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy. And his burden is light. Well, well, I wish I could describe him to you. But he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. The heavens can't contain him. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off your hands. You can't outlive him and you can't live without him. Well, Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him, and death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. He's always been, and he always will be. I'm talking about he had no predecessor, and he'll have no successor. There was nobody before him, and there will be nobody after him. You can't impeach him, and he's not going to resign. That's my king. That's my king. This illusion that Paul makes... The Old Testament does nothing more like this sermon from S.M. Lockridge than enhance the transcendent wisdom and the self-sufficiency of God. And it is at this point that I imagine we find Paul laying face first on the ground in complete reverence and worship of the God of the universe. And I wonder this morning, do we find ourselves in a very similar place? Worshiping the God that has just been described. Does our theology leave room for a God of this size? What can say beyond this than to proclaim as Paul does, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. You see, there are some things that theology just can't measure. So what's the point of theology? 
My standing here today to undermine six years of my theological education in front of those who have given their lives to this practice. No, I'm definitely not. I think there's a fairly obvious relationship between theology and doxology that Paul demonstrates for us in this text. Paul does not end his 11 chapters of theology with a period. He ends these chapters with a doxology. It is clear that theology and doxology should never be separated. There is something that isn't right about a merely academic interest in God. God is not a thing to be studied, but rather a person to be known. But this doesn't mean that we should throw out the practice of theology altogether. Paul does not get to this point without first sorting through his theology. John Stott says it like this, It is not possible to worship an unknown God. All true worship is a response to the self-revelation of God in Christ and Scripture and arises from who he is and what he has done. Bishop Hanley Mule says this, We must equally be aware of an undevotional theology and an untheological devotion. I would like to leave you with a thought today from the writings of A.W. Tozer. He writes this, It is one thing, said Henry Suso, to hear for oneself a sweet lute, sweetly played, and quite another thing merely to hear about it. And it is one thing we may add to hear truth inwardly for one's very self and quite another thing to merely hear about it. We are turning out uh, from the Bible schools of this country year after year, young men and women who know the theory of the spirit-filled life but do not enjoy the experience. These go out into the churches to create in turn a generation of Christians who have never felt the power of the Spirit and who know nothing personally about the inner fire. The next generation will even drop the theory. That is actually the course some groups have taken over the past years. But one word from the lips of a man who has actually heard the lute play will have more effect than a score of sermons by the man who has only heard that it was played. Acquaintance is always better than hearsay. Truett Seminary, may we be a people who, like Paul, enjoy the experience of a spirit-filled life. May we be a people who constantly hold our study and our experience in the same hand. And may we be a people who rejoice in the fact that there are some things that theology just can't measure. Thank you.